Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. For many men, the therapeutic model doesn't fit with our solution-oriented approach to life. How is talking to a stranger about my life even going to fix anything? My next guest's journey with therapy, however, is emblematic of what's possible when a man recognizes some things aren't working in his life, asks for help, and puts in the work to uncover the unconscious drivers of his behaviors. Justin B. Long is an author whose books traditionally fit in the sci-fi and non-fiction categories and cover themes of personal growth, overcoming challenges, and love of nature. In his new book, The Righteous Rage of a Ten-Year-Old Boy, A Journey to Self-Discovery, Justin dives more deeply personal, sharing his journey to process the traumatic childhood experiences that drove his insecurities and negative self-view with the help of a skilled therapist. Using his own personal story, he's now on a mission to make the world a better place for people by combating toxically masculine ideas surrounding men and their emotions. On a personal level, Justin identifies as an artist, as an entrepreneur, and as a husband. I'm grateful he's joined us for the New Masculine's two-year anniversary episode. Can you believe it? It's been two years. This is so incredibly exciting. So let's welcome into the New Masculine a man with a similar mission. Thanks for joining me, Justin. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm glad to be the celebratory guest. Yeah, I didn't tell you that ahead of time, but we're (laughs) we're, when this airs, it will be our two-year anniversary, and it's exciting that we've... I just don't know that I expected it to continue this long and to be having such a ball with this. So thanks for joining me and thanks for being a part of the celebration. Obviously, you're doing some good stuff. No, thank you so much. So is there anything else that I haven't shared about you so far um, from the introduction that you'd like to share with people before we get into the meat of this conversation? I think a lot of it is that I'm a thinker and it's easy for me to get lost in my head and lost in my thoughts about who I am and what I'm doing in life and understanding that there's a difference between being self-absorbed and self-aware. That's a big transition that's happened more recently in my life. Mm, Say more about that. That's an interesting switch, a (laughs) turn of phrase. Right? Well, the, uh, you know, I picture, because I'm a, I'm a sci-fi nerd, but I picture the great eye of Sauron from, from the, the uh, Lord Lord of the the Rings. Rings series. Yeah. But, you know, the eye turned inward and just staring, staring on the inside, but never really seeing what's happening. Mm. Um, I think for me, I was, I was staring at my feelings and, and the way that I, I felt 
kicked around by the world and neglected and it never really occurred to me to also be aware of how I was reacting to that and what I was even reacting to. And my, my experience was so narrow compared to what was actually happening in my life. I just couldn't see it all because I was focused on one very, very slender thread of, of my existence. Well, that's a huge and profound kind of shift in perspective that you had. And I'm kind of excited to dive into what your, what your journey's been like to get to that point. It sounds very similar to, I think, the languaging I've used to describe because I'm also an overthinker about myself at times. And so I think the way that I've described it is I've sort of trying to move from a more self-conscious approach to a more self-aware approach. Mm, I like, like that. Like my self-consciousness was like mostly critical of self and mostly oh, always. A- avoiding feeling shame or uh, something that I was less than. And so moving, like, I want to keep my self-awareness, but that self-consciousness was just like tearing at me and not, and blocking me from really actually stepping into the world. Right. I think part of it is that the self-consciousness is, for me, is so deeply tied to shame. Mm. And shame is probably the most powerful emotion that I've had most of my life. And it's really hard to, to override that with something positive. Yeah, you and me both, brothers in shame. <laughs> I say shame's always been one of my biggest teachers in this lifetime, for sure. Yeah. Have you seen Big Mouth, the uh, cartoon on, I think it's on I've heard Netflix. of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, well, that's, it's all about uh, teenagers growing up and kind of figuring out life, but one of the characters in that is the shame monster. And, and uh. he comes out and it just, you know, terrifies everybody. And I was like, you know, my wife didn't really react to the shame monster, but I was like, oh, my God, that's the guy that's been dominating me since I was like three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that they've encapsulated that character um, oh, and, yeah. and give it a, an actual like representation so that you can see it externally to yourself. I think the thing that's so hard about shame is it's so internalized and it's so like a part of our the way we've created an identity that it's hard to sort of separate it out and like, oh, I don't have to feel that way. Right. Yeah, for me, like someone made me feel ashamed once. And I think I just, I took the ball from there and just never stopped running. Like I had touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. I'm just carrying the shame ball. No one else ever needed to put it on me again for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. And then it's interesting as you were sort of, sh- what I'm gathering from what you shared about what your wife, um, ex- her experience of it was, is like, then there's some people that don't carry that monster around with them or not oh, threatened yeah. by that monster and it's like for boys like us who look around and going like how is that possible that you wouldn't <laughs> right? that you wouldn't be reacting to that shame monster it's amazing to me to look at her because she grew up with with good solid parenting and confidence and like all of the all the tools that a kid should have to be raised with and like she's never had any of the self-doubt battles that that I've had my whole life and it's just to look at every turning point in her life and the decisions that she's made, the actions that she's taken and where she was at in her life at 40 compared to where I was at at 40. Unbelievable difference. Like I was still crouched down in the corner thinking the world was kicking me around. She's off over here, you know, had a doctor got her own practice going, you know, hires people, fires people, runs, runs her little world and never thinks twice about what she's doing. And I, I looked at that with such awe when I met her. Mm. I was 38. We were both 38 when, when we met. And it took me a couple of years to understand that the difference came from the way that she was raised and taught to feel about herself. And it was so different from my experience. And we talk about that a lot as a couple about, you know, understanding each other and and why we have the challenges or the that we do is that, you know, the, the, what 
she was taught to think about herself from a very early age versus what I figured out on my own because no one taught me. Mm. What a gift to have a, someone who models a new way of being in such a different way and that just owns it. It's unbelievable. But also, I think for me, having someone who already has that confidence in themselves who also believes in me and gives me the support to follow my dreams and try to do whatever it is that I want to do. Like, I've never had that before either. And that's an amazing thing. I've, I've limped through the world with another broken person. And that, you know, while we functioned as a relationship, it wasn't good for either one of us. And it certainly wasn't healthy. And to have that to compare to this and the difference that it makes and what I've been able to do with my life, just having someone that believes in me and, and supports me, just like I'm amazed by the power of a quality relationship in a life that's, that's there no matter mm. what. Mm. Well, it kind of makes sense based on the most challenging parts of our lives are often very relational too. Like, as you said, someone shamed you once and then you carried that for the rest of your life. So those like traumatic or those challenging moments happen within the dynamics of a relationship. And so it seems also true that the opposite could happen. The most life-giving, the most affirming, the most transformational experiences can happen within relationships too. Very definitely. And then, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding because the negative experiences that I had as a child and those adverse childhood experiences created my self-beliefs and that drove the way that I moved around in the world. And her positive childhood experiences created her self-beliefs and, and drove the way that she moved through the world. And so the, the little things that happen when we're young impact every aspect of our lives. And we just never even think about that stuff or realize it until you sit down and put all the pieces together and compare it to someone else's journey. And it's it's unbelievable the the long-term effects that those things that happened back in 1983, you know, still have here in 2021. It's, it's amazing, positive and negative. Yeah, completely. I love that we're already diving in completely deep right in the very first couple of minutes of this conversation. <laughs> I appreciate that, that you're a deep diver with me. <laughs> I am. I don't do a little bit of anything. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. <laughs> so let's actually hear about some of those childhood experiences that you had. What are some of those stories that come to mind when you think about growing up and learning to be a man in this world? I've, I had such a negative view of my childhood most of my life, but... It was because I had a, a very challenging and traumatic childhood in a lot of ways. My dad, my dad was the rule with the iron fist. You know, we must always be working. Here's a thousand chores that will be done every day. And, and he could never be pleased. He was, he was that quintessential guy that no matter what I did, he never ever gave me a pat on the back. And one of the examples that I use in my book is that, uh, you know, chopping firewood, stacking firewood. That was one of my jobs. And, my dad would come home from work every day and inspect the firewood stack. And if the firewood wasn't all the way to the top and straight and neat and narrow, I would get slots for, for every piece of wood that was sticking out of the pile a few inches. And, you know, I never got it perfect. So I got a spanking every day. But that experience and, you know, a thousand other ones just like it taught me that no matter how hard I work, I'm going to fall short and I'm going to get punished. And, my dad, I don't think he ever intended to make me feel horrible about myself. I think he intended to to make me try to do better and be the best that I could be. But, you know, he was recovering from his own traumatic childhood and a, and a father that treated him the same way that he treated me. And I don't think that he knew how to express anything other than anger. So 
every every interaction that we had was my dad being mad at me about something. And I got to spank him every day. And my mom was on the opposite end of that spectrum. You know, she was emotionally damaged to the extreme from her childhood, but she didn't take it out in the same way. And she was always searching for for something that she could do to get God's attention so that God would cure her of, of all of her problems. But, you know, she wasn't a disciplinarian. And so when I would be excited or mouthy or whatever it was that the, a little kid does to, to make his mom mad, you know, she didn't she didn't spank me because she didn't feel like she could do enough a good enough job with it. So she would put me in the in the dumpster in the big trash can. I would have to roll that in from outside and sit in there and wait for my dad to come home to give me a spanking for whatever it was that I did. But those things, you know, those events, the the feelings that I formed about myself, the truths that I formed about myself at, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, and then reinforced throughout an entire childhood of those similar experiences, you know, those those made me believe all of these horrible things about myself. And I had these insecurities as, you know, as a result of those things for all of my life. And it wasn't until you know, I was in my 40s that I was even aware that these were insecurities based on childhood experiences. So when I would, you know, be at work when I was 25, 30, 35 years old and, and my boss would come to me with a, uh, you know, something that I'd done wrong or a shortcoming of some kind, I would get so defensive and I'm ready to fight to the death over some perceived slight against my value as a human being because I'm reacting to my dad never being satisfied with anything that I did. And, you know, I just have these resentments that I carry towards anyone in authority because of that stuff. And so that was, it was a lot of just, I didn't, I didn't consider it abuse until my therapist forced me to admit that it was abuse, but it was a lot of just really strict, impossible standards that, that I could never meet in, in my childhood. And, uh, and it shaped everything about my life all the way up until I was 45 years old. Hmm. Yeah, having a father that really most predominantly expressed anger and uh, a punitive style, disciplinarian. Um, what did what were the stories that created for you in your mind that you carried along with yourself? I know you're sort of saying that you had a negative self view. Like, what were the things you told yourself? Oh, I had a lot of them. Um, mostly, I felt that I just had this overwhelming sense of futility. Um, one another one of my dad's things was working on the car because he never believed in, in paying anyone to do anything. So he was a do everything yourself kind of guy. And we had a terminally broke down vehicle and he would send me to the toolbox to get a wrench. Um, and he would say, you know, go get me the nine sixteenths. And so I would go to the garage and there's a toolbox with 8 million tools in it. And I'm pretty sure, you know, I, I know what nine dash 16 means, but it's on 35 different wrenches and sockets and everything. And if I bring the wrong one back, I'm in trouble. Or if it's not there and I can't find it right away, I'm in trouble. And I would run into this dilemma constantly where I've been at the toolbox looking for the 916ths for at least 30 seconds. And now I have to decide, do I just cut my losses here and go back and not waste any more time, try to minimize how mad he is and get in trouble for not finding it? You know, and then he's going to drag me back by the ear and we'll look for it together. And, you know, and then he'll beat me up when I, when it's wherever it is. Or do I keep looking and risk him getting mad and getting out of the engine and, and coming in to, to find out what's taken me so long? But, but that futility would make me so angry. I would just, I would be, I remember standing in front of the toolbox, just locked down in frustration because no matter what I do, I'm screwed. Right. 
if, if, if I if I go tell him I can't find it, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in trouble. If I don't and I keep looking for it, I'm in trouble. The only way that I could win that is if I found it immediately, and that didn't happen. And, you know, half the time the wrench would already be out at the car. He forgot that he already had it out there. But, you know, that kind of stuff, it would never be like, oh, that, my bad. Sorry about that. It was right here the whole time. It was never that, you know. It was, you know, well, you probably did something else that you deserved that spanking for. But that sense of futility, I think, and just helplessness and just being a victim of, of an injustice, I'd like, it made me a control freak. I, I remember feeling like no matter what I do, not only is, is it not going to be good enough, but I'm going to get punished for it. I'm going to be in trouble no matter what. And, you know, when I graduated high school, I got out of home as fast as possible. And I did that by joining the Army. And in the Army, everybody and their uncle was in charge of me. And most of them had no idea how to have any authority over someone else either. And so it just reinforced all of those same ideas that because the Army is big on punishing everybody. And, you know, you're, you're, you're going to screw up no matter what. And it just, it cemented all of those ideas that, that I'm just not good enough and, and I'm going to fall short and people are going to judge me. People are going to punish me. I'm going to be an outcast. And, you know, because that stuff followed me to school, when I developed all those ideas about myself at home, then I went to school with the understanding that that's who I am. And I understand now as an adult that we teach other people how to treat us. And so I went to school and taught everybody to treat me like a, like a piece of shit, because that's how my dad, my dad treated me. That's my understanding of who I am. And so I, I sort of created my entire identity based around my understanding of who I thought my dad thought that I was. And, uh, and that's, it's probably not even based on anything true, but it was based on how I felt about myself because of that. Hmm. Wow. That's a big piece of awareness to recognize that your whole identity and self-value was created based on your father's view of you. And and maybe not even his accurate view of you, but just his reactive view of you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My and and I've I've been guilty of doing that most of my life of since then is finding someone else around me who, you know, I want to be cool like them. So I will base my opinion of myself based on what I think their opinion of me is. Mm. And not understanding that no one is a good communicator. And, you know, even if I want you to know how much I like you, I'm probably gonna have a hard time showing that especially as a man because we're not allowed to do that kind of stuff so you know it's all a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of guesswork and filling in the blank on my part on what i think someone else thinks of me based on our interactions together and and if it's someone that i'm trying to seek their approval i probably don't know them very well because as soon as i get to know anybody too well then you know that all goes out the window and I, they're not the same cool faultless person that i would like them to be and uh you know it's it's just an impossible way to look at life and, and to build your self-esteem yeah that's such a it's a pattern that i recognize in myself as well that i've been that i've worked on through my adult life is basically my unmet needs my insecurities i project those out into the world and i start creating idealized versions of people in my mind that I try to then try to live up to when I actually see the human being that's really there, they're flawed just like the rest of us, but I'm chasing after this thing that I've created in my head about them. And mm -hmm. then I've created again, what I think they think about me. 
And so I'm yeah. chasing this. Fu- it, it, it is an exercise in futility. One of the things that you really like learned as a child around futility with your dad, <laughs> it's like you start to recreate that out in the world where you often are giving your power over to somebody that doesn't actually really exist. Just your projection of them exists. Mm-hmm. And then, and then trying to control the way they think about you, which you can never do. <laughs> right. And the harder you try, the more you mess it up. Right. Uh-huh. But that's our brain's job is to make predictions of the future based on past experiences. So if we get down to just the, the very core of, of what we're doing there, we're, we're going to do the same things over and over expecting different results because it's what we've always done. Mm-hmm. And until you break out of that cycle of automatic thinking and start getting intentional with, with how you formulate all of these ideas and thoughts and beliefs, then, then it's never going to change. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something I talk about a lot with my clients around the concept of trauma. You're talking about the trauma that was in your childhood. And sometimes trauma looks like the big capital T traumas where there's some big dramatic event. There's sexual abuse. There's physical abuse. There's mm-hmm. the death of someone very young. There's the, sort of those big traumatic experiences that we know about. But then there's also like the slow day-to-day kind of small t traumas that sort of shape our viewpoint of the world. And one of the things I talk about is with my clients is when you notice yourself in a pattern where you're trying to avoid something, but actually are creating it in the avoidance of it, you're probably got a trauma pattern playing out. It means Mm -hmm. that you have something unresolved that's driving your behavior that's trying to avoid something, but accidentally recreating the same thing to provide evidence that the world is the way that your trauma pattern sees it. And so it has this will of its own because it self-reinforces. And it isn't until most of us ask for help, get a therapist, have somebody that has a completely different worldview that doesn't come with shame deeply attached to them like your wife, that we get to start to see that, well, maybe that's not the truth and maybe that's just something i've been believing this whole time Mm. that's my entire life in a sentence right there (laughs) (laughs) i hear that yeah i hear that so you had a child that was filled with futility helplessness feeling like a victim of injustice what did that do to your relationships um as an like more as you were sort of stepping into adulthood what were your dating relationships like what were your friend relationships like what tell me how that impacted your relationships Hmm. Uh, heavily (laughs) with a capital h my uh my my dating life was basically zero because Mm. i was such a a ball of negativity and i had no confidence i had no self-esteem you know i didn't bring anything to the table and it probably didn't help that and part of this is, is my parents but um you know i was Sort of undernourished as a, as a teenager, I, I grew faster than the the grocery budget did. So when I graduated high school and went to the army, I was six foot two and I weighed one hundred and thirty pounds. Oh wow! So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, picture a stork. You know, uh-huh. everything just tall, skinny, gangly, like no control over my body. Like I, I didn't have any sense of grace at all. So I'm sure that was a contributing factor to me being single, but. But most of it was that I was so desperate for companionship. I was so desperate for someone to accept me and love me and tell me that I was okay just the way I am, that I was over the... Every time I would meet a woman that I was attracted to, 
I would throw myself at her feet and grovel and try to give her the world and tell her how incredibly amazing she was. And I couldn't understand why, you know, they were never interested in that. And it's because I was, I had the billboard that I was carrying around with me that I am a broken human being. I am emotionally dysfunctional and you do not want me in your life. And thank God for their sake that, that most of them saw that. And, uh, you know, the relationship that I was in for 12 years was the one, the first woman that was willing to take me home and let me come back the next day. And I moved in immediately. I was 23 years old when that happened. But, you know, we met in a bar and she obviously had a lot of her own challenges because she was nine years older than me. She was 32 when I was 23. And, uh, you know, from my perspective that I have now, I can see that she obviously was trying to deal with a lot of her own traumas and challenges and, and figure out her life. And she made some pretty poor decisions by letting me into her life. Because, you know, I like I said, I had nothing to offer anybody, and I was just a, an emotional drain for anybody that I was around. But at the same time that that was happening, I was still in the Army when I met her, and all of my friends were in the Army, and we all drank alcoholically every day. Like, that was our routine, was to, to go to work and, and come home from work, and we all lived in the barracks together and just get hammered every day after work. So, um, and a lot of that was me trying to deal with how I felt about myself. And alcohol really made me feel like I belonged in that group of people. And they accepted me and loved me. And alcohol was the central binder, I think, of, of our relationship as a group of friends. And uh, and so I, I associated drinking with having a good time. And I associated sex with acceptance because that was, that was the only... I didn't have any emotional training or understanding. I didn't know what it meant for someone to accept me because I didn't feel like it had ever happened. Um, even though I had two best friends in high school, uh, both guys, but I didn't, I didn't understand my feelings. I didn't understand relationships. I didn't have any good examples of adults having relationships with one another, whether they were romantic or platonic or workplace or anything else. And so my relationships with my friends, uh, were probably not great. So I only have one of those friends still to this day, and she was just as much of a raging alcoholic as me. And we managed to get sober together many years later. But um, so none of my relationships were good. And even in the workplace, uh, my relationships with my the people that I worked with were always combative because I had no self-esteem and I felt like I had to prove my worth every day just to survive. And so I would undermine everybody around me and, and try to highlight everything that I was doing to make sure that the boss knows that I'm amazing. Again, searching for that acceptance and that pat on the back that I never got. And then I would be resentful when I didn't get all that approval that I was searching for. And so I was a terrible teammate. I was a horrible person to work with and to have, you know, in, in the environment in general, because I was, I was fun in a lot of ways because I was also the class clown. It was my other tool for trying to be accepted. But I was always, always, always trying to prove myself in an over the top fashion to, to, to gain acceptance. And like, that's all the relationships that there were in my life, the work, the, the home and, and the friends. And none of those were healthy. And, and I would be aware of that. Like I always felt like I was on the outside looking in. Um, you know, the, the quintessential Christmas movie when the guy's walking down the snowy sidewalk and he looks in the window and the family's all gathered around the table and he's outside in the cold. Like I felt like that person my entire life, even when I was accepted in groups and, and people were 
letting me be in part of their lives and, and them and mine. Like I, I didn't understand that it was happening. I didn't know how to recognize that I was already accepted, that I got what I was looking for. And so I just kept on searching. And especially in the, in the romantic side of things, because I associated sex with acceptance, even after I was in a long-term relationship and a committed relationship, every time we went out to a bar, I would get drunk and, and try to get laid with anybody that would give me three seconds of their time because I was searching for that acceptance again. Like I already got it from the one that I'm living with. So I need it from somebody else because that wasn't today. I need something today to get me through today. And I, you know, tons of challenges on the relationship with that kind of behavior. And especially, you know, within our friends group, when I tried to control that, those urges, I would, I thought that, the, you know, I was a sex addict and I just shouldn't be drinking in public. And so we would just drink at home or with, with friends and, and that would continue. And so you know, I'm, I'm hitting on all of our friends every, every Friday night. And that's a challenge on the friendship and the relationship. And it's just all of it was about me not accepting myself. And I just couldn't understand what was happening. Yeah, it sounds so much like so many of the relationships you were creating and seeking at that time were so much about maybe like uh, trauma bonding, bonding, o <laughs> bonding over an unresolved thing, even if you're not actually talking about the trauma, but it's sort of like you're mm -hmm. bonding over a shared sort of view of the world and giving each other permission to act in certain ways that might even be to your own detriment. Um, be, because it's safe to do that. You can hide in that. You can hide with fellow alcoholics. Right. You can find, you can hide with people who are also seeking acceptance through sex. Um, I'd never heard someone lay that out so clearly. I, I, I see that in a lot of people around that piece around using sex as a piece of acceptance. I'd never mm -hmm. really put those two words together, sex and acceptance. And that makes a lot of sense. That so many people, it's a tangible, physical act that says i am accepted somebody has yeah. accepted yeah. me at least in this moment and it's interesting how often people are chasing that acceptance oh man i have a friend in recovery uh that 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 is his life like he spends his life trying to make himself as attractive as possible and Every time you see him, he has got the most amazing, beautiful woman on his arm. And it's never the same one twice, even if you see him every day. And that's exactly what he's doing. And he, he cannot find the acceptance that, that will last more than a day from somebody. And he's got to drop that one and go find the next one. And even though he's aware of it, you know, he is stuck behind that that toxically masculine idea that for me to go get therapy is to admit that I'm weak and I can't do that. Mm -hmm. So he's willing to stop drinking. He's willing to try to do a lot of things, but he's not willing to take that last step that will help him feel good about himself. And it's so hard to watch that happen. And I think it's painful for me because it's me, you know, it's like looking in the mirror for most of my life and then finding my way past that and not being able to help someone else find their way past. It's just hard to watch that, but that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, that's so hard. I want to hear a little bit about how you made it through this, and because you have a lot of self-awareness and a lot of really strong clarity about what drives your behavior. I wanted to note before we get into that part of it, you were sharing this sort of metaphor of being like the guy in the movie looking in on Christmas, where there's a family having Christmas mm -hmm. and you're on the outside. In some ways, it's a metaphor, but it's actually even a part of your real life experience. Like I was reflecting on a, it made me think of the moment in the book that you're sharing about how your sister was given gifts for Christmas and you were given a pile of sticks. 
um, right. as a part of your Christmas. Can you share a little bit about that story just so that because um, it, it, it really encapsulates what you're talking about, about being on the outside? Yeah, that was I believe I was six years old the year that happened. My, my sister was born on my sixth birthday and everything about my life changed at that point. And and in retrospect, I can I can look at it and know that my family, who was already poor, had a very significant change in their financial situation and everything else. And I was able to blame a lot of what happened on, on that kind of stuff. But but what happened was <laughs> what had happened was <laughs> I. I'd, I think that I, I felt like my mom being pregnant was pushing me out of the family. And especially once my sister was born, of course, it's a very typical situation where the existing child feels backburnered because everybody's paying attention to the new baby. And I don't know if I acted any different. I never felt like I did. Um, when, when Even after I got the sticks for Christmas and I would reflect back on the previous year trying to figure out what my parents were considering that, that I was bad, I was so bad that Santa Claus wouldn't bring me any presents. Like, I didn't really come up with anything. But I remember that Christmas morning going out to the Christmas tree, super excited. Mom and dad are still in bed. My sister's still in bed. And I went out there, and there was a pile of presents for my sister. And the only thing that was there for me was that bundle of sticks with a red ribbon wrapped around it and a yellow Post-it note with my, my name on it. And just... I didn't even believe it at first. I felt like they were trying to teach me a lesson and that, you know, because I was a bright kid, I, I figured stuff out. And, 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 and I assumed that that's what was happening, that after I cried and promised to be a good boy, that the real presence would come out of the closet and then we would still have Christmas. But, but that didn't happen. Um, I talked to my aunt about this after the book came out, my dad's sister. And she told me a side of this that I never knew happened. But my dad was bragging about that when we went to grandma's house for Christmas with the whole family later that afternoon. My dad was, was bragging to his brothers and sisters about how he, you know, put the fear of God into me and I wouldn't be acting up anymore. And, uh, and they tore him apart over that. And, and on my behalf, like my aunts and uncles went to bat against my dad, who was the most terrifying person in the world for me and that blew me away like that that made me cry but the feeling that that i'm not part of this family that i'm on the outside looking in like i think that is probably one of the cementing moments in my life where that really that, that like that was the first time that that happened and that was that was the day that you know my life took a a, a course that, that it hadn't been on up until that point and it never stopped. Like if, from that point on, I felt more and more outside the family. And then I was outside of everything. Like I never, I was never able to get plugged back into a group. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly why my brain sort of went to that story when you were saying that you felt like the one on the outside all the time is because you actually had that experience given to you. And, yeah. and one of the things that I, thought was beautifully articulated in there was around what the support of a therapist does for a moment like that. In some ways, you, I heard what I read and what I kind of heard from you here was it was easy to contextualize it and make excuses for it. Oh, well, they were poor or well, they couldn't have done this and to sort of not really own what that experience was. And as you said earlier in our conversation, your therapist made you sort of admit that some of this was abuse. And and mm -hmm. she points out a new perspective in the book around this experience. It's like poor people don't 
hurt their children. They don't punish their children. They don't, um, they don't, they're not there to take it out on their children and to make them feel like they're out on the outside. That's right. And I don't know why I was never able to, to see that, but it's almost like Stockholm syndrome where we just, you know, I end up defending my parents and their behaviors to myself and to everyone else my whole life. But, but that's exactly right. Like the fact that you know, we were poor shouldn't have had anything to do with that. And it didn't have anything to do with that because if, if it had just been a lack of money, my sister would have got two presents and I would have got two presents and they would have said, look, you know, we love you and we're so sorry that this isn't going to be a great Christmas. But whenever we get back on our feet, we're going to make it up to you. You know, that, that's how you handle that if it's a money situation. But this was a, this was a dominance thing. This, this was a, my dad not having any idea how to be a dad, my mom not knowing how to be a mom. Now, I thought that it was me, but my therapist helped me see that it was them in that situation. And in every other situation that I found myself in, you know, thinking that there was something wrong with me. But there was nothing wrong with me. Like, even with the firewood stack. It's, it's, it's them. It's always been my parents. You know, my dad is incapable of, of showing me love because he never received love. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I'm not lovable. It's that he doesn't know how to communicate that to me. And, and the same with the, with the Christmas presents and everything else. And my inability to see that as a child, I think, really shaped my understanding of who my parents were as well as who I was. But but it also led me into that whole self-deception of, you know, telling myself stories about why this this is happening this way and and never, never actually realizing the truth. Yeah. Well, and it's hard to sort of expect a child, the child version of ourselves to be able to put abstract concepts like that together. The prefrontal cortex of the mind isn't even fully of the brain isn't even fully developed until 20-ish or early 20s. Mm. And that's the part of our brain that deals with abstract thought, that is able to think in metaphors and understand multiple moving pieces in an abstract environment. And so right. our childlike brains, especially at the age of like six, seven, somewhere in there, you are going to be making a little bit more cause and effect kind of rationalizations for certain things. And so it's like, in, yeah, in some ways, it's like the limitation of how you saw that experience. But it's like also that's developmentally super like <laughs> appropriate that your mind couldn't do that. Um, right. And is important for people to reflect on because that's why those experiences are so profoundly impactful for the rest of our lives is because our brain makes an association based on those moments that may or may not have all of the details pulled in. But then it's trying to spend the rest of it's it's spending so much effort trying to avoid feeling like that ever again. And, mm. and yet so many of our trauma patterns actually keep reinforcing that we feel that way. We're trying to avoid it, but we feel like it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> that is information I needed to have most of my life. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, my, my dad never allowed me to be a kid. Like I was always expected to be an adult as far back as I can remember. And I transferred that expectation onto myself somewhere along the line. So, you know, when it, when I think about me not being able to figure that out at eight years old, I'm I'm mad at myself for for my inability to to put the pieces together. It's like you said, I wasn't even capable of understanding the dynamic of what was happening there. But you know, that's part of what I'm working on today in therapy is is understanding 
that it was okay for me to be how I was wherever I was and, and accepting my child self and all of my various stages of evolution and, and agreeing that, yes, it's okay that I was a kid and it's okay for me to not have all the answers now, much less when I was 10. Yeah. And, and from what I witness in you is, is like you've taken it further into your awareness and taken it further into your personal development than most people ever have access to. Like to be able to say out loud, in on a podcast for others to hear that you used to like seek acceptance through sex that you used to throw your feet at or your yourself at the feet of women trying to earn their approval that you like the the willingness to uh, acknowledge where your shortcomings were but to sort of own it in a way of like this is where i've grown into being able to see like that's a huge place that requires the ego to drop a lot quite a bit and to be able to own and accept the limitations of you while also being able to stay deeply connected to your value and worth as a being hmm. well, it's it's certainly been a, a journey to get to this point and i'm i'm still practicing every day but i think that the more i understand why i did everything that i've done in my life and 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 forgive myself for, for my shortcomings and, and recognize that, you know, if I hadn't ever done anything wrong in my life that, and I just had a, a perfect ride all the way through that I never would have learned the lessons that I've learned. I wouldn't have anything to compare my experience today to. So a lot of it is, is acceptance work mm -hmm. and, and being okay with all of the, the former iterations of me that I'm not proud of. And I'm very ashamed of a lot of the things that I did in my twenties and my behavior and, who I was trying to be at that point, but learning how to back burner that shame and just recognize that, you know, I was dealing with a lot of trauma without any help as best as I could. And, and that's the direction that I was going. And there are many textbooks written about people doing all the exact stuff that I was doing. So I was, I'm not doing anything that's unexpected for the, the path that my life had taken up to that point. And the only really exceptional thing about me at all is that I managed to pull out of that nosedive and change directions. Which is exceptional because I don't because a lot of people don't <laughs> pull up from that nosedive. Right. For sure. <laughs> so you talk a lot about you talked a lot about how your um, there was a, a period of time where you were heavy into drinking or some alcoholism going through. I know that's also the time frame where you started therapy the f for the first time. Can you tell me a little bit about the trajectory you've been on in terms of having a therapeutic relationship? It's been it's been a long, slow, gentle arc, but I think it's really important that it was. I stopped drinking when I was 32, and that was mainly due to to an outside influence. There was a guy that I commiserated with at work every day. We would sit behind the shed and sweat out our hangovers, and you're talking about comparing you know, sharing traumas and, and that kind of stuff. That's exactly what we did. We were both miserable and not happy with our lives in any way, but didn't like our jobs, didn't like our spouses, the whole thing. But he was a, a funny, cool guy that everybody in the shop liked, and he approved of me. And so he was he was on top of my list of, of people that I wanted to emulate at that point. But one day, uh, I had a particularly bad hangover. I, I remember... Like I had, uh, I don't even know what I had, I'd had to drink, but, but I puked and there was, you know, it got to the point of dry heaves and I had tinges of blood in that for the first time. And that kind of scared me a little bit. And I was telling him about that. And I was like, man, I, I really gotta, I gotta get this thing under control, take a break from it, give my body a break, if nothing else. 
It's like, I'm not bad enough to go to a meeting or anything like that, you know, just, and I didn't know what, it, what that even meant. I just heard a, a comedian say that one time. So I used that line, but he came back with the, you know, he said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about going to a meeting. And I was like, oh man. So, you know, if, if, if he is as cool as he is and it's all right for him to go to a meeting, then it's obviously okay for me to go to a meeting. And so I went home from work that night and drank my last three beers and read through the AA website and found that there was a meeting two blocks from my house at a church down at the end of the street. But it wasn't until a Thursday, and that was a Monday. So I managed to go three days without drinking, which I had not done in probably 12 years at that point. And, uh, and I went to that AA meeting, and everything changed in my life at that meeting. And I don't remember anything that anybody said. I couldn't tell you who was there. But I know that for the first time in my life, I sat in a room with about 20 people in it, and they took turns telling me a bit about their story. And all of these people, a lot of them guys, were talking about feelings and not feeling good about themselves and hating themselves. And all of the things that I felt on the inside, but that no one around me ever, ever talked about. And I thought that I was the only one that had that going on in my head. And uh, and that, that changed everything for me. That, that made me realize that there is, you know, there is another way to be and that, that I might be able to change the way that I feel. And, you know, the guy that I worked with, he went to meetings with me. We, we went for about 90 days and then he, he quit and uh, went back to drinking, but I didn't. And that was 13 years ago. And a lot changed for me over the course of time. But one of those things was my attitude about getting help, I think. Um, just, just going to meetings and not drinking and working the 12 steps with a sponsor taught me how to be more aware of what I'm doing and, and the impact that it has on me and the world around me. And, and I think that was, that was the first, first step that needed to take place slowly because up until that point, I lived 100% reactionary. I just, you know, went from one event and, and one interaction to another and just reacting to the world around me. I was never intentional or aware about who I was or how I treated anybody around me. Like, I never thought about any of that stuff. And so this, this was the first crack in that, learning how to, to think about that a little bit. And it, uh, it took about two years, I think, for me to find a guy named Roland Mora. And Roland was... I think he was 74, 75 when I met him. He was an old, gay, one-eyed Apache Vietnam veteran yoga instructor. Just unbelievable presence. But he was also everything that I was terrified of anybody ever seeing me with, right? Like, you know, my whole idea about being a tough guy and, and everybody not thinking that I'm a sissy in any way because my dad thought I was a sissy, so I can't have any any possibility of anybody reinforcing that idea, right? So... I was I was going the tough guy route most of my life up until that point, and Roland had he had what I wanted like he he had that confidence and the presence and the zen, and when he talked about meditation and getting still and connected with himself and the universe, like I, I liked what he was talking about, and so I asked him to sponsor me, and that was a, a big giant step out of my comfort zone. But Roland not only taught me about my xenophobia and all of my challenges that come with being a, a white guy that I didn't have any concept of, but, but he also taught me how to be introspective and how to understand the why behind the what on what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And he taught me how to, to self-examine both in the past and in the present 
and, and to, to be intentional and to understand why I believe what I believe. And I worked with Roland for about six years until he died. And in that time, my, my opinions about almost everything in the world changed, but a big one of those was counseling. And, uh, and after Roland died, I, I, I went to a therapist for the first time, but that was probably eight or nine years, maybe even 10 years after I got sober. And, uh, and I think, you know, had I gone to therapy, like the, the same day that I tried to quit drinking, I don't think I would have gotten anything out of it because my attitude was too close minded about it. It took me a long time to get comfortable with the idea of admitting that, that there are things about me that I don't like and that I want to change. And especially to, you know, someone who doesn't know me, someone who I'm not deeply connected to. And, uh, and that, that was a scary jump for me, but I had a good experience. I, I, I managed to, to find a good therapist right off the bat. And, uh, so I didn't have to go through a bunch of bad experiences like I hear other people have. Um, and I was able to be honest with her. Roland taught me to be honest about myself, that if I'm not going to be honest about who I am and what I'm doing, that I'm never going to be able to change any of that. And so I was able to be honest with her about that stuff. And, uh, and that really opened me up when, you know, she made a lot of progress with me in a short amount of time because I'm, I'm committed to, to getting better and to changing who I am and how I feel about myself. And, um, and so not having that resistance band in place, I think, allowed me to make a lot of progress in a short amount of time. But I went another three or four years after that before I went to the therapist that I have now because I moved. I met my wife. I moved to Florida um, and a lot of things in my life changed. And I was I was doing good with a lot of things, but I still I, I knew that I still had that. Uh, that confidence issue, that self-esteem issue, and, and that I was still triggered by all of these insecurities that I'm carrying around. And I just didn't know what to do about that. And I didn't know if anything could be done about it. But I found another therapist uh, here, and I had an absolute home run. This is about my experience with her. And she taught me that it's possible for me to change the way that I feel about myself. All of those negative self-beliefs that I formed as a child, she helped me get to the inside of those and, uh, and change the way that I feel about myself both now and, and then. And that is the biggest of big deals. But it took me, uh, it took me 12 years to get from the point of maybe I'll stop drinking for a few days and see if I can do something different in my life to a full on deep change the way I feel about myself therapy session. Mm what changed in those 12 years? Like what needed to happen for you to be open to that? Pretty much every idea that I had about being masculine or being a man had to change. Mm. Um, because I've got all of my understanding of what a man is from my dad. And my dad, from my perspective, my dad ruled the world through rage and determination. And so that's how I approached everything. I tried to I felt like the more you can dominate everything around you, the, the more value you have as a man. And I, I really had to let go of all that stuff. I had, I had to let go of the idea that, that I can ask someone for help and that it doesn't mean that I'm any less of a, of a person. I, I was, 
I was so unwilling to ask for help that, that I would rather push my car down the road by myself if it broke down or ran out of gas. I would rather push it by myself than ask someone to, to help me push it or to tow it or whatever. Like ridiculous levels of needing to, to never, ever, ever ask for help. And it's hard to overcome that mindset when, when that's your approach to life in general. Like you have to, you have to change your whole fundamental understanding of, of how you operate. And that's what I had to do. And it, it was, it was from the big stuff all the way down to the little stuff. You know, my, my understanding of how to eat a steak came from my dad. On the rare occasion that we had a steak, he always said that, you know, a steak, a good steak ought to be burned to a crisp. And so I was 35 years old before I ever had a steak that was medium rare and it changed my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> There's one of million beliefs I brought with me from childhood and never questioned that, you know, I had to examine and, and turn that over and be willing to change my mind about that. And that's the, the, the biggest thing, I think, is that I had to be willing to change my mind about everything that I believed. And that was my key to success. That is so powerful to hear you say it in that way. I'm so glad that you are able to encapsulate it um, so clearly and succinctly because I think it is what you were saying in the pa um, previously around the idea of examining the why behind the what that you learned from your sponsor. That so many of us are aware of the what we're aware that we're men we're aware that we that we how we move through the world but we're never really getting curious as to why we do certain things the way we do and as simple as what you were saying about like how you eat a steak why do you eat a steak full fully well done um why where did that come from why do you do it how would you like it to be um I think that is so important that many of us do that work to really reflect on the why of the what so that we can really decide, is this working for me or do I want to change it? Something I heard you say around that your therapist, your current therapist really helped you with was, was helped you see that, that you could change the way you feel about yourself. What was that process like? How were you able to actually change the way you feel about yourself? Because I see so many people in therapy and coaching going through the motions and staying pretty tried and true to that original belief they have had of themselves. I even see that in myself at times where I'm still working on some of the same uh, self-belief patterns that I had really early on as a child. What was it like for you and how did you guys go about changing the way you feel about yourself? You know, I, I think it's human nature to resist change. It's, it's every, everywhere we look is, is people being unwilling to change that, you know, fear of the unknown is, is so powerful. But I think one of the important keys is to get to the point where you're so uncomfortable the way you are that the unknown becomes the better option. And for me, it wasn't that, that my life was horrible three years ago, because it wasn't. I, you know, I had this amazing wife and an amazing life. I finally found a job where I fit into the puzzle perfectly, like all of the skills that I have and, and are developing, like have, have a place and are appreciated. Like all of the stuff was there. I've, I've learned so much about myself, but I still had such low confidence in myself that I was, I would, everything would come out as rage and, and I was tired of being angry all the time. And it's just, you know, rage is a topical emotion. Anger is a topical emotion. It's, it's hiding something underneath, which were my insecurities. And 
I found a trauma therapist who does EMDR therapy. And EMDR, I, I'm not even going to try to explain it because I don't know what, what all it does on a, on a medical and scientific level. But essentially what it does is we change the emotions that are tied to memories. And so I sat down with this therapist and we revisited all of these childhood events. Uh, she had me make a, a list of them, of, of my top 10 most memorable childhood traumatic events. And we went through them one by one. And that's a lot of what the book is about. Each chapter is me visiting one of those events and digging down exactly what happened, my memories of how I felt at that time, what was going on, uh, what, what my parents were doing, what, what was going on in the world at that point. And then, you know, examining that from my adult perspective of, of what was happening in that time. And that's when I really really started understanding that it was the fault of my parents and not, not not a fault of mine that you know what that I would get in trouble for all of the things and that you know I would I would get a, a spanking for the firewood not being straight and that I got sticks for Christmas and my mom would make me sit in the trash can like all of those things when I look at them from my adult perspective and it was t t so hard that she had me con you know, consider how I would react if I saw my neighbors doing these things to their children. Like that's what it really took for me to, to understand what it was that was going on in those situations. Like if I saw my neighbor put their kid in a trash can and, and beat him over the things that I got beat for, I would absolutely consider that child abuse. And I would know that there was something wrong in that household. So being willing to change my understanding of what happened was the first step. And then, you know, w once that happens and I realize that I'm a victim in that situation, I'm not the perpetrator of the crime, then I can look at myself with some some empathy and, and some understanding of what was, you know, what my situation was. And know that, like with the firewood, like I stacked that firewood every day. I, I did it. We never went cold because I didn't stack the firewood. Like I accomplished my task. When I had to dig a ditch for the water line, I got spanked for it for because it you know wasn't perfectly straight and smooth, but I still dug the ditch and the water line went in and we had water in the bathroom. Like I did all of the things. I accomplished the tasks. And being able to look at myself as someone who accomplished the goals and uh, instead of someone who got punished changed my my realization changed of of who I am and what I'm capable of doing. And, and with that comes the knowledge that, you know, I'm not a loser. I'm, I'm not a guy that can't get things done right. I'm a guy that always did the stuff. I did all of the things. I'm, I'm an, an achiever and I don't need to try to do extra and more and, and always over the top to, to get people to notice that because the only ones that didn't notice that were my parents and they're not a good representation of the world. So. You know, understanding all of that stuff helped me change my belief of who I am and what I brought to the table. And that was so, so important. And it, and it became redundant, you know, as we went through, this went on for a year and a half, this therapy. And we went out through event after event after event. And I came to the same realizations on all of them that I was always okay. And the problem was never me. The problem was my parents. And, you know, that just, that changed everything about my understanding my confidence soared through the roof my belief in, that i bring enough to the table to to stand on my own two feet you know 
my even my my recollections of who I was as a kid, it's not with shame anymore. It was always with shame, like we talked about, but um, not anymore. You know, when I reflect back on eight year old Justin or twelve year old Justin, it, it's with some pride. And I'm still working on getting proud of 25 year old Justin. That might take a little longer, but I'm, I'm at least <laughs> to the acceptance point, you know? Yeah. I'm so gla- grateful that you sort of highlighted this EMDR therapy. For those of you that don't know what that is, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I don't know the full studies behind it and the science behind it as well, but it seems as though the focus is really on sort of desensitization to traumatic or unresolved experiences from the past. And then reprocessing them in new ways. And I think your book, the narrative that you provide in your book, you're actually taking us through some of your EMDR sessions. And there's um, some little paddles in your hand that vibrate. There's an external stimulus that goes along with the sort of shit reflecting and sharing on the stories. But one of the things that's so powerful to witness and to be a part of in, in re- as the reader of this book is to see how your sensitization how sensitive you are to that memory starts to decrease over time and then how you start to reprocess it and see yourself differently as you were saying you no longer saw yourself as the perpetrator you saw yourself as the victim and from that experience then you could reprocess the experience in a completely different way that brings a consciousness to it that brings a transformational element to it that releases you from that insecurity or the stories that were created in that experience it releases you from those driving your behavior without your choice anymore and i think you so beautifully write about that in the book that it makes a lot of sense why someone might it it sort of made me lean in and be like oh maybe i should try this emdr around some of the things that show (laughs) up in my life around uh, that I consistently get stuck in and that I, that I have awareness of, that I'm conscious of, but I can't quite move through because maybe I haven't done the work to desensitize and reprocess them. You know, there's so much life experience that, that we that we carry with us. And I think that, I don't know, it, I've had to attack different elements of it at different points in my life because it's it's so overwhelming. And to try to do it all at once is, is, is unreasonable. But I think that the, the more we work with this stuff and the deeper we get into it, the easier it is to, to see the, the bigger picture and to break it into manageable pieces and say, all right, you know, this is a, an element I'm going to deal with. And when we get to the end of this, then I'm going to work on processing something different. And, and it, but also having some small successes helps build the the belief in the process too. And I think that's a really important element for me is to, you know, if, if I'm not getting anything out of something, I'm not going to stick with it for long. Yeah. But EMDR was like an immediate turnaround and things. And I, I really, the more I got it, the more I wanted. And and now I'm just looking for, for what else can I work on? Because it, it does become a way of life and a way of thinking too, that, you know, I am committed to continuous improvement. And I don't think that, that I will ever get to a point where I'd be like, okay, I'm done. And now I can just go live life. I think that, you know, this is a part of my life is continuing to be aware and to, to try to grow in an in a intentional direction. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the, this piece around awareness is how important it is and how we can change our life. And Something I heard you say that really sticks out to me that in my in my work as a coach with men that 
you found to be actually really important was this piece around building faith in the process, belief in the process. Like so many men don't see the therapeutic relationship or a coaching relationship or asking for help as offering a, a process that's beneficial. It just makes them feel shame or vulnerable, vulnerable or hits their insecurities. And I think so much importance to the therapeutic relationship or actually stepping into this new, tra- like transforming your life and, and committing to personal development is actually starting to build faith or belief in the process that it can change. That if you step to keep taking a step forward, even if it's not drastically better all at once, that if you keep taking steps better, it will start to improve. You will start to see the positive benefits and how that shows up in your relationships, in the way you feel about yourself, in your work that you do, in your sense of purpose in the world. I I really appreciate you highlighting that because I think that's something that I sometimes see men really resistant to start building a relationship to is that belief in the process, that it can change as long as you put in the commitment and the work. I think that you really have to frame it in a way that, that makes sense to, to us, especially as men. But if we're gonna, if we're gonna change our body, if we decide that we wanna bulk out, there's a process that we have to go through. We're gonna go to a professional that's gonna help us eat right and use the right exercise machines and, and in the right ways and do all the system, create a system essentially to, to achieve the results that we want. And the same thing happens with our mental health. And I think it's important to look at it in that light. Like, I'm not a a broken, weak, pathetic piece of shit that's hoping that someone will wave a magic wand over me and help me. I am a person and, and I am not exactly the way that I want to be yet. And there is a professional that can help me make the adjustments that I want in my lifestyle until I get where I'm trying to be. And that's what it is. You know, it's, it's training the brain the same way that we would train the body. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you've been on your own personal journey of transformation, healing, reprocessing, desensitization. You've been really committed to your own work and transforming the way you see yourself and the way that you feel about yourself. Why was it important to you to write this book? It started out just as a journal because I was going to therapy once a week and I was learning so much about myself and having so many insights that I was afraid that I was going to start losing pieces because there was just an overload of information. And so I started writing down notes on each on each session. And the farther I went, the more I would start writing, uh, just trying to capture everything because it was making so much sense to me. And by the time we were six months into this, I realized that while all of the traumatic events that I experienced were my own unique experience, the insecurities that I formed from those experiences are the same insecurities that everybody else has. And the behaviors that came from those insecurities are the same behaviors that everybody else has. And the, the way that we fix all of that is the same for everybody else as, it, as what I was going through. And that was such a tremendous insight for me that I was, I really felt compelled to, to share this, this insight that because it applies to everybody, I think anybody in the world could, could use this tool to overcome their doubts about themselves and to improve their life. And like, that's too big to sit on. I I felt like I had to share that because it was a, 
such a life-altering event for me to to know that it was possible for me to change the way that I feel about myself and that I'm no longer a victim to my insecurities. Like I have the power to change that. And that's something that everybody needs to know. I'm so grateful you you feel the weight and the power of how big that experience was and that you're willing to share it. It The book has a beautiful arc and I, I kind of want to tease it up a little bit and then leave it for the reader to to buy your book and read. But the book has this beautiful arc to it that has sort of this long road to empathy with your father, to forgiveness with your father and your, well, both your parents. But um, some of the some of the really big stories come from your relationship with your father. And as as the story goes on, and as you go towards the end of the book, there's this beautiful forgiveness ceremony that you highlight in the book that I think is so redemptive and so transformational and so powerful that I really want to sort of key it up and, and tease it a little bit because it sometimes going through the, the details of someone's story can feel like, okay, why am I in this? Where is, where is this heading? Where is this going? And, and it does have this beautiful arc that leads to this beautiful sort of new space of forgiveness, empathy, and the ceremony that you participate in to, to sort of encapsulate the forgiveness you feel with your father. Um, so I really thank you for writing the book, for taking us on the journey with you, and for using your skill set to really point out something that's really important for us as men. This We need to change the way we feel about ourselves, and we need to really understand the why behind our actions and the impact of those actions out there in the world. I think in some ways we're, we're not as good at men as at recognizing our impact. We're good at achieving goals. We're good at providing. We're good at dominating. We're good at just barreling through and moving forward. And we, and we sometimes forget to check in on the impact that's having on ourselves and on the people around us. And so your story really highlights that journey. And I really appreciate that you were brave enough to not only be a man going through therapy, which is often challenging for most of us to say yes to, but to actually talk about going to therapy, to share your story. Um, and I think it's going to, it gives other men permission to do so as well. Much like that, that coworker you had that said he was going to go to an AA meeting, your story now gets to represent, oh, well, maybe if he can go to therapy and he can have these experiences, maybe I can too. Mm. Thank you for that. I, I really, uh, <laughs> I, I'm still working on how to express gratitude in situations like this, but I, I appreciate that you that you said that. And um, and I have a a beautiful example that that works for me, and and modeling why this change is so important. And uh, in the movie The Princess Bride, arguably the greatest movie, wonderful of all time, right? movie. I love where this is going yep. already. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, at the at, at the the sword fight at the top of the cliff. The Dread Pirate Roberts and the Spaniard fight seemingly to the death, right? But in that scene, those are two guys who are at the top of their game. They're fantastic swordsmen. They're as manly as manly men can get, right? Like they, they can do all of the things. But in that scene, there is no trash talking. And they complement each other three times. And... Like and at the end of it, you know, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but it's so old. There's probably not anybody that hasn't seen it. But you know, the the Dread Pirate Roberts chooses not to kill the Spaniard, even though he bested him because he respected him. But my my 
take away from that today with, with my understanding of what masculinity is all about is that you can respect someone else's game without it taking away from your own value. You don't have to try to dominate and crush and destroy and belittle and, and all of the things that we do when we're insecure. Like a confident, secure guy like the Dread Pirate Roberts was able to be a perfect gentleman the entire time and never did anything unbecoming. And I, I use that as my example of what would the Dread Pirate Roberts do? What would the Spaniard do? How would they handle this situation? Because they're not feeling like, you know, anything is being taken away from them if someone's better than they are. Like, I just, that's such a different mentality for me. And that's what I aspire to. I love that you brought up that example. It's such a, I never had put it in that way. I'd never taken that scene as seriously as you have just clearly laid out for us. And I love that even in that scene, there is conflict. Like we can be in conflict with each other. We can disagree. We can not always see eye to eye on something as men, as people in this world, but we can also show up with a deep level of respect and honor for each other. I think that's something that's so missing right now. Like that scene has a sword fight, a duel. It's, I mean, there is conflict in there, but you can do it in honor. You can do it with respect for each other and you can see the humanity in the other. Exactly. You take that to the workplace. Mm. I mean, you take take that to your job and, and any sort of conflict that you have with a, a coworker or a boss or whatever. Like it doesn't it doesn't have to be a negative experience. You can both come out of it as winners. Oh, I love that. I love that's such a transformational way of being in a relationship with uh, as men that we're not in conflict or we're not in competition. We're not trying to always seek who has more power and who has less power. We can just be equals with each other and and have respect and still navigate conflict and and work towards a shared vision with each other. I was going to ask as a way of wrapping up our conversation if there was a piece of advice that you would give to men what would that be? It sounds like you're already giving one, but is there something else you'd like to share as we wrap up our conversation? Yeah, I would say um the most important thing for me is that I am true to who I am and that I don't ever try to be someone else to impress someone or to make someone feel a certain way about me. And the, the more I am true to who I am, the less complicated my life is and the, the less stress and, and challenge that I face because I'm not trying to maintain a facade. And if I had known that one simple thing, that it's okay for me to be who I am and the people that are going to love me are going to love me and the people that aren't aren't and both of those are okay. You know, that would have changed a whole lot of my life experience. I feel such relief hearing you say it that way. It feels so much more simpler to live life that way based on rather than trying to like control how other people think or feel or whatever happens with them. I can just really focus in on being myself. What a much more simple way of approaching life. So thanks for offering that. So if people wanted to find out more about your book, wanted to buy the book, wanted to find out more about the other books you write, how might they do so? Uh, you can find out everything there is to know about me at my website, which is jboydlong.com, J-B-O-I-D-L-O-N-G.com. And there's links to my social media there. I've got a blog where I talk a lot about personal development and links to books and all of my upcoming stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to check out about you. It's not just a, a memoir of your time in therapy. There are books about being a, uh, a veterinarian's husband. Um, one of the things you and I both connect on is, is that we are often out on ranches and farms and working near horses and other livestock. And so 
Um, I just think it's such a unique approach that you have. So I definitely want to highlight that and tell people to go check out the other work that you have. I'll make sure that your uh, website is linked in the show notes so that people can easily access it. And yeah, I just really appreciate you being willing to, again, be a man who asks for help for being a man that's done a ton of work to change the way that you approach the world and the way that you approach your relationship to self and that you've taken the weight of that and really shared it with the rest of us because it like I said before it does give permission for the rest of us to also start on that journey if you can do it I can do it and I just appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable and share your story well I appreciate that you provide a platform and a message that helps unite everyone because we all have this same struggle and I think it's really important for us to know that that we're not alone in in this and that there is a a way for us to grow together and change the world. So thank you for everything that you do in that regard. You're so welcome. And and thank you for that. If people want to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Travers03. It's where our ongoing conversations of the new masculine are continuing to go on. Or you can email me at travisstock03 at gmail.com. Again, that's travisstock03 at gmail.com. I'm also on Patreon if you want to support the mission of the new masculine. We're two years in and we're planning to keep on going. So if you want to help contribute to the podcast, please become a contributor at patreon.com slash the new masculine. Again, that's patreon.com slash the new masculine.